podcast ain't played nobody pre summer vacation edition. Uh, the the teachers have given up. Students are 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 they have wanderlust in their eyes. Um, they're also bored and hot. I'm harkening back to my days as a public school elementary stu- school student in Virginia. Bill, we're gonna take a break next week. Just one week though. That's our that's the entirety of our summer vacation for podcasting. Play nobody. Um, content. I feel like we're in a valley. Um, so, so the funny thing is, we've said that since January, and yet we talk eighty-five minutes every uh, every week. So, I, but there I, is no there is no valley. I feel like we we may have delayed the inevitable, but it but it it has arrived. We knew it would, and that's okay because here's here's my point. As we lead off today's show, it's okay to have the valley. People miss the valley. I uh, I was on the phone with three different universities yesterday, scheduling some things that are going to happen for SB Nation. Um, Specifically, some video stuff and uh, a story, a profile. Um, three three universities that are all big, kind of big time football programs in the Power Five. And each time I was speaking with them, we, we were we were talking about Bill. How it, it's kind of calm right now. I know the Baylor wave happens. Um, there have been things Mississippi uh, State and Ole Miss. Each national news, all bad. Everything's bad, but. It's quiet now. We don't have a massive, um, you know, Big Twelve kind of ish, but we don't we don't have that LHN causing, you know, world disrupting problems. We get to have a vacation. So so what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about not technically realignment, but re divisioning because we couldn't. I feel like we couldn't leave well enough alone. We complain all the time that this has become a year round sport. In you know manufacturing its own its own stories and leads and narratives, and yet this is this is what we're doing to fill the gap. Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm I'm totally okay with there being a gap of sorts because in the last two weeks, uh, a had a relative pass away and we inherited his chihuahua, um, and then my wife, who I know will be listening to this, uh, decided to pull a muscle in her in her calf, which means I've been handling the walking and taking the kid to summer school thing. She has like a little play school thing in the morning. And I don't, you don't ever realize how much like losing what an hour of your day can make mean, uh, until you do it. And suddenly you're an hour behind every day. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm totally cool with not having to suddenly drop everything and write about, uh, something really stupid. So instead of something really stupid, we, we, we wrote about, uh, a li- uh, realignment or whatever we want to call it, but I will say, Godfrey, you owe an apology wow. to the word to the word pod, because last week, oh no, as we were discussing this, you showed disdain towards the pod. And I still have week, disdain towards the pod, but but a week good. later, that's basically what we created. And a week later, we found that it's the most perfect solution in the history of mankind. So uh, yeah, that's that's debatable. But so look, we're we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna dive down this rabbit hole because last week on the podcast. We, we, we were thro- throwing some, some stuff, uh, for those of you with, with children in the car, uh, shout out to, to the two different listeners who hollered at me today that they have to drive their children somewhere so they needed our podcast. Um, we threw some things against the wall, turned into some hashtag content on the hashtag SNB Nation. So, um, Bill, how, how, how do you start to explain this? I, well, I guess it starts with me complaining about Alabama, Tennessee, Auburn, Georgia. Right. And the blockage, the, the the lower intestine intestinal blockage that, that that creates for other programs in the Southeastern Conference, uh, you and Jason went about fixing that. Yeah, um, and it basically started with an idea that that we had had. Like I was kind of just thinking out loud last week, which is what the podcast is for. 
And, um, and yeah, I just started tinkering. I didn't, I don't think I ever realized, I, I realized this idea has been around a while. It's not like we created it last week, but I'd never really, I never really completely nerded out on the idea. I didn't quite ever realize how clean it would be. If you have 14 teams, uh, three permanent rivals, eight conference games per year, which I still, I'm the one person out there screaming that I, I would rather have eight than nine because it opens up more opportunities non-conference wise and blah, blah, blah. Some people will schedule cupcake cupcake games, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's going to happen anyway, especially with the SEC. Um, so live with it. I like the cupcake games too. I get to see the backups play occasionally. And I like that the, uh, the, the FCS teams can pay their bills. I like, it's, it's all part of the circle of life. And I, uh, as a data standpoint, from a data standpoint, I also like eight games more because it means more non-conference games, which against whoever it's against, it means better connectivity among teams. Anyway, so by doing this, by having three permanent rivals, that means you're left with 10 other teams to play. You play five each year. That means you're playing every team in your conference every two years. Uh, if you're there for four years, you get your team will play at every single visiting stadium on the list. Um, that is something that... That is something that the 14-team, the et cetera, conference, it, it doesn't... It, it no longer allows for that. Like that, that was when it was 12 teams back when Missouri was in the big 12. Uh, it was, you, you would still, even though it was only once every four years, you knew if you wanted to visit Lubbock or whoever, and I visited most of them, then I would have it. Then you will have an opportunity within four years. I think that's a big deal. And like I was saying last week, Billy Gamilla, and I, Billy Gamilla and I were joking about the fact that, um, you know, I'm going to probably miss uh, Missouri's LSU trip this uh, this coming, whatever it is, late September, early October. And, you know, I probably won't get another chance until like 2037. So um, that's a little bit frustrating. But when I started actually tinkering with this, it actually works. I mean, like I said, I know people have been screaming about this for a while, but it actually, aside from like Auburn and Tennessee, I believe, um, pretty much everybody else can really fill their quota. They're, they're absolutely necessary rivalries in three steps. Obviously, you know, the, we, we missed on what Auburn LSU, we missed on Georgia, Tennessee, we missed on, uh, like Kentucky, uh, Tennessee. And I know that's a big one for Kentucky fans. Um, but we hit but a, we hit on most of them and B the best part about this is, if we missed, if we missed that rivalry, sorry, we're playing every other year instead. And that's pretty good. I think that's the biggest point is that at first glance, I noticed a couple things missing in terms of the annual rivalry, but the whole purpose of this is to rotate schools in and out enough to where, you know, uh, Alabama kind of has a Texas vibe about it the way in the Big 12. Every every school wants to play and beat Texas every year, even though Texas would not consider them, you know, their, their, their big-time rival, Baylor and Texas Tech and so on and so forth. So... Alabama kind of has that vibe. So I, I look at the schools in the West that don't get to play Alabama every year, like Arkansas, like Mississippi State, like Ole Miss. If you're seeing them with that level of frequency, I don't feel like you've lost much. Um, I'm, I'm kind of trying to nitpick this apart, and I can't really find a way to do that. Um, I think Georgia-Tennessee might be the most uh, of the it's-a-tradition-type you know, angry rebuttal. That may be the sticking point. Um, you guys did a pretty good job addressing everything else. I, I'm most impressed with how you in, involve and sort of maybe manufacture some things for the for the outlier programs and the newcomers, like 
you know, I, I think for Texas A&M having, having Arkansas, LSU, having border states, and then having Missouri as, as you know, the sort of co-Big 12 newcomer thing, I think that works. And then I look at Missouri, A&M, Arkansas makes total sense. Kentucky, okay, you know. Yeah, I mean the problem, obviously, the outlier programs and the and the and the ones that just haven't been historically good. I mean, I know there was a Vanderbilt uh, fan in the comments section, kind of you know complaining that we weren't taking those rivals seriously. But I mean, it's just kind of the the nature of the beast that you start at the top, you know, and and so obviously. You know, Van, or in this case, I guess maybe Kentucky, Tennessee means a lot to Kentucky fans. Probably means a decent amount to Tennessee fans. But we're going to start from the top, and Alabama probably means more to Tennessee fans. Florida probably means more. And some, you know, somebody pointed out, you know, well, Florida, Tennessee's only really mattered the last twenty years. Well, yeah, twenty years, long time, twenty-five years even. So um, I, I want to, just in case you're traveling while you're listening to this, or, or not able to access your phone or laptop, what have you, I want to break some of these down. So. Uh, for instance, if you're a Georgia fan, this new this this hypothetical never going to happen, but still need to do schedule. Your three permanent opponents every year are Auburn, Florida, and South Carolina. So the biggest loss there, you assuming obviously you know you keep your your Georgia Tech non conference up, uh, is Tennessee. However, I think if I were to tell any Georgia fan that yes, you give up playing Tennessee absolutely every year. However, you gain Alabama. And yeah. LSU at a at a much higher rate. I think Alabama and LSU specifically for the Georgia fans I know, um, because Georgia just the byproduct of the Mark Rick era is that they feel like a one A program in terms of top flight SEC. They you know for national title reasons et cetera and so forth getting drugged by Alabama. I think they want the frequency chance that that you know like Ole Miss and Arkansas and Mississippi State and LSU get at Bama. So I think that I think they would be fine with a fair trade there. Tennessee will feel jilted, I mean, around that, around that part of the state. One of the things that we talked about when we were building this, when you guys were building this and I was trying to kind of poke holes in it just as a, a quality control measure, because that's what I do, um, you can find objection to any format of scheduling. The, the proximity within the states to the borders, I think, is a really smart idea of, of creating the border rivals because that's where you're going to have intense fans. Now, that's not going to placate everybody. If you are a University of Tennessee fan, where you are in the state of Tennessee affects your most hated rival in a very dramatic way. So if you're in Chattanooga or, or Cleveland, Tennessee, you probably hate Georgia more than you hate other team, you know, Vanderbilt or Ole Miss or whatever. So Tennessee is a tricky one. Tennessee every year would get Alabama, Florida, and Vanderbilt. I think it's good for Vanderbilt to keep Tennessee for, for Vanderbilt being what it is, I think that's a fair concession to make. And then you get Florida and Alabama every year if you're a Tennessee fan. I think that's, you know, the funny thing is, this whole thing, Bill, was born of me complaining about two rivalries that are still intact every year on your schedule. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you you just want to break up the, the division things because you're tired of hearing about Auburn, Georgia. We figured out a way around it. It's not that, I mean, I'm not really tired, especially that rivalry because I am from Georgia. I, I get it. I do. Tennessee, Alabama, then. Yeah, I mean, you know, I get it. My my half of my family's from the the Macon Warner Robins area. Auburn's have kind of, I mean, that's that's a big deal. But I really think it's just more the frustration of not as as a as a viewer at large of the Southeastern Conference. I just get angry when I when, when we're stuck with Mississippi State, Kentucky, or LSU and Florida having to really in the last fifteen years unfairly play each other every year in competition. I think I would just. I would really like to see more cool things like Texas A&M, Florida, or 
you know, Georgia and Arkansas or what have you. Uh, I mean, I, I think everybody collectively would agree with that. It's just that when you tell people you're going to take away Tennessee Bam, everyone freaks out. Um, even though that rivalry sucks. It secretly sucks. It's not good. Um, and somebody pointed out one of the technical drawbacks with this is that is that now there you could conceivably end up with a scenario where three teams finish 8-0 in conference. This is true. Um, now... You know, being that we, you know, being that, you know, like Alabama and LSU are tied together, Florida and Georgia are tied together. Basically, if it if that were to happen, it would require like a, a Mississippi State and a Missouri or a South Carolina to be two of those three teams. Um, so, you know, that, that right. Basically, what I'm saying there is the odds are like less than one in 100 that that would happen. I and, also want to help out here that um, some of the sacrifices you made, I was not privy to this when you and Jason were doing it. I think. As a graduate of a program in the SEC West, as someone who covered college football for a long time in the SEC West, I think you don't lose anything by ditching Auburn and LSU annually. Now, again, if you hear that and think it's sacrilege, well, these teams are going to see each other very frequently. Yeah. Auburn and LSU was a was a temporary rivalry, like a, 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 a Lunchables rivalry. Okay, you throw it in the fridge, you can eat it for two weeks, maybe after that it's going to start to scare you. When Tuberville was at Auburn, when Saban was at LSU, the, those two teams were the toast of the West. As, as the power began to kind of shift over from the Florida-Tennessee era of dominance, it was a great, awesome rivalry, and there were some awesome games, no doubt. But right now, it doesn't. Th- there's no blood rival thing there between Auburn and LSU. Um, Auburn and Mississippi State, I think you can you can leave it. I mean, it doesn't really add or take away, or it's, it's just it's just sort of there. Um, yeah, I felt bad for Mississippi State that we didn't get LSU on that list, but um, I mean, yeah, like I said, there are a few programs that needed about State seven. To, I mean, Mississippi State wants to play and beat Ole Miss, and and everything else in life is second. So I mean, you've got Ole Miss on there; they're still in the West. They would still see Auburn. I mean, you've got Mississippi State, Auburn. You've got um, you would have them. I think rotating at a, at a at a decent enough rate with the other Western schools to where I don't think they would care too much. I, I, I it's I'm hard pressed as someone with 10 years experience in the state of Mississippi to name the number two rival for Mississippi state. I don't even know if it exists. Uh, all I remember is when I went through there for my little SEC road trip thing a few years ago, the, uh, the guy who ran the hotel we stayed at, um, made, when he found out what we were doing, he basically said, everybody's welcome here. Uh, we have a good experience with everybody except those damn LSU fans was basically, I think he might've used a, a word different than damn now, but, um, that may be more, <laughs> That may be more of a uh, situation. In the oh yeah, no, I know what I know what he meant, but uh, I, I found it really funny. And that, so I always have in my head that there's a a few different la- layers of of uh, dissatisfaction between those programs. So I wanted to keep that on the list, but oh well. I really like. Um, I mean, I'm impressed you guys figured out how to give Kentucky a football identity. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, I, that was what I liked about this too, is it really does kind of form these little clusters of, um, again, you're playing everybody in your conference and that's important, but it forms little clusters. And we, we found the same thing when we were doing the big 10, like, um, being able to, you know, what is it? We gave Penn state, we didn't, we struggled with Rutgers a little bit, but we were able to, for a while there, I was looking like, man, you could create this little cluster of Penn state Rutgers, uh, uh, Maryland that we've talked about a lot in terms of recruiting. And that would really kind of ramp up the sort of hostility between those. It didn't work out because Penn state also needed to be tied with like Michigan state and others, 
But um, but I, I like that, and, and so and and like you said, with Texas A and M getting Arkansas and LSU and Missouri, that that's kind of its little tie. Now I saw, I've seen Missouri and A and M fans complain about this, and I have too. Actually, I don't actually care about ever playing A and M. Um, like it, it just hasn't really ever. It was fun winning. It, it's been fun winning at Kyle Field like three out of four times and whatnot. But um, but I didn't really that care little, if that was. I think that was a little backdoor smack there, Bill. <laughs> Well, that, that's that's been our one at Rock M. That's been our one kind of tie to that is, hey, we get to go down and you know, uh, four row field south and blah blah blah. But um, but ask, that's really it. Let me ask you about South Carolina real quick. Okay, um, that that was actually Missouri South Carolina is what I, I originally had that on the list for the whole Columbia thing. But go ahead. Well, so to to the end of temporary rivalries or or, or you know finite rivalries like Houston Nut leaves Fayetteville, he goes to Oxford. That game is nasty and put on the calendar and and all those cliches for about the four or five years. And then Petrino kind of moves them away from that is, was there any must champ thinking involved when you put South Carolina and Florida together permanently? Or was that just a byproduct of other math? Uh, That was a byproduct. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the order of the decisions that ended up having to be made, but South Carolina was obviously going to be tied to Georgia, even though that's kind of a spurrier thing more than anything else. Um, but it's also, you know, border rivalry and whatnot. Uh, but then it was kind of tricky to figure out what to do with South Carolina and Missouri, for that matter. So they kind of got pushed to the back of the line a little bit, and that's how they ended up with who they ended up with. But it makes sense. I mean, um, for the most part, aside from very obvious east-west ties like Missouri, Arkansas, like Alabama, Tennessee, et cetera, you don't end up with many situations here um, where a, a, a random East team was paired with a random West team, even though they haven't played each other very much. I don't remember who is, who's Mississippi state's permanent East rival Kentucky. Okay. So that one, that one wasn't forced. That one was, was maintained. But so for the most part, I think we, we managed to, there was one in the big 10 one too, that, that was kind of a little on the weird side, like Michigan state, Nebraska, I think uh, just because Nebraska, like Missouri and A and M, there's there's only going to be so much of a tie at this point. I saw uh, we we tied Nebraska and Wisconsin, and and there was a Wisconsin fan say, "Well, we've only played them a couple times." Like, well, yeah, but you know, A got a pair with Nebraska with somebody, and B, I mean, you've had a couple memorable Wisconsin Nebraska games already. So I, I went with that, even though mostly of the blowout fashion, I guess. The best thing about this is are the games that it avoids. I'm trying to find. I mean, Mississippi State, Kentucky is just one of those weird byproduct games. I, I always put that up as the strangest bedfellows of the permanent cross division. A lot of people yeah. said Arkansas, South Carolina before A&M came. Um, this avoids a lot of, I think, slow, crappy division games that don't matter. Um, yeah. Mathematically, did you project – have you plugged this in with like the, the current S and P? I would love to do that. I have not been able to do that yet. I'm behind on everything at the moment. Well, um, my only concern here, though, this is just knee jerk, and I, I can't even see the math in my head. That's why I keep you around, buddy. What, if anything, does this open up in terms of lopsided schedules? Well, that's what we address that further down in the post. Like it, in the end, because you play everybody so frequently, right? Um, the ranges really average out, and and because we were a little worried when we when we did the Big Ten one, like. Rutgers ended up with Indiana, Maryland, and Purdue as natural rivals. Uh, meanwhile, who was it? Um, Michigan ended up with Michigan, with Michigan State and Ohio State. Michigan State ended up with Michigan and Penn State and Nebraska. Like, if you look at only those three teams, the range ends up getting really big and kind of scary. 
Uh, like this just won't work. But then when you factor in, especially with in the Big Ten where you've got six other games, you're playing half the other teams anyway. And as long as those are distributed relatively well, then in the end, the range between like jumping back to the SEC because I love bouncing back and forth to confuse people. Um, the range, like the average, the average average opponent using S and P Plus ranked thirty three point two. That's kind of the midpoint of the SEC. Um, the range was basically from like 30.4 or 30.0 in terms of like, that's what Florida faces on odd years in our, in our scenario. Um, oh, and A&M has a 27.7 in even year. So those are pretty tough schedules, but then the easy ones are like, um, Tennessee in odd years, the average rank is 38. So we're talking about basically a, a, a range from Penn state to like, I don't even know, like, uh, what's what's a good example? Well, um, 30 and 35 last year were Penn State and Auburn. Okay. Um, so we're basically talking about a range slightly bigger than that. That's not a range. That's not bad at all. So it really was a lot more even than I anticipated uh, when we started that. And that's one of the things that sold me on it. Because, I mean, yeah, you can look at that and see that some years are definitely harder than others. A&M's even years are way harder than Tennessee's odd years. But it it's still within a healthy range and it does balance out over time. So I, so I like what I'm going to do right now is go through your 2016. Let, let's say tomorrow the SEC burns down its schedule, redoes it completely. And starting Labor Day weekend, after everyone's not conference games, they institute the schedule. Okay. So what I want to do is try and find, and you can help me here, because when I, when I try and wreck Bill's work, um, it, it's never on a logical ground because I come from the world of media, which is filled with dumb... <laughs> uh, narrow-minded, uh, myopic columnists. And so I'm trying to figure out which program would complain or, or which, which curmudgeonly newspaper guy would complain about the death of tradition the loudest and the longest. Hmm. I think you did a pretty good job. I'm having a tough time finding the person who's just absolutely going to writhe in agony about the, the loss of, you know, hashtag tradition. Yeah, um, the best part, too, is that, uh, like, Georgia, Tennessee, and Auburn, LSU – we, the way we set it up, I think this was probably accidental, but like the first year, the, the even years, the 2016, uh, would actually include Auburn, LSU, and Georgia, Tennessee. So we wouldn't even really notice until the second year that they were gone. And by yeah. that point, I think that the, the ship would be sailing pretty smoothly. So, uh, Well, I mean, come on. There, there is still provincial media, my friend. Um, the best and by the way, by the way, speaking now. of media, um, not going to mention any names, uh, <laughs> but I, I saw at least a couple people complaining about this. The best um, I can come up with is maybe your staunch old school Little Rock media, and this you're going to laugh when I say this, hollering about the loss of quote unquote tradition because they don't get LSU in 2016. Yeah, yeah, no, that was a, that was one people pointed out to Arkansas LSU, but again, LSU is one of the teams that needs about seven spots. So, um, but I, I still liked what we did because Arkansas still gets the Hunter Henry Bowl every year. Arkansas still gets Missouri and A and M. That's not bad. Uh, and, and, and also, you insulated yourself against some of the biggest outrage because in year one you have Tennessee and Georgia. Right. That's yeah. That's that's what I meant. Yeah. But so, but one of the complaints here, it's like it's funny. I do these things all the time. If you haven't noticed, we talked about bracket buster. I've written a bracket buster post before. I've done. I do promotion and relegation stuff every year. If we had started this whole product or project with the Big Ten or ACC, um, I don't think anybody would have grumbled. But because we started with the SEC, I got there, there was a little bit of pushback. Oh, the SEC isn't realigning. Why are we talking about this again? Blah, blah, blah. It, a, it's it's a it's 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 just for fun. 
and it's June, and so why not? But B, it, it was a fun reminder that the SEC can't be used for fun. This is serious. This is the SEC. Well, here's – okay, so before we move on, this is one thing I want to touch on. And this is taking, taking an abstract exercise that was done for fun on a website in June – if I'm sitting in the boardroom in Birmingham, which would be a, a really miraculous feat considering they <laughs> don't even return my phone calls, yeah. I'm making this pitch. The sexiest part of this for the assembled um, evil conglomerate of the Southeastern Conference would be that the SEC title game would be phenomenal every year. And that's something that I don't know how you argue against. This has become the, the Tiffany Conference championship game in yeah. the fact that it's perpetually sold out. It does huge numbers outside of prime time on a national network. It's the blueprint by which no one has really ever been able to replicate against. Um, this would only make it better. That, yeah. that, that's, my, that's my big pitch right up front is that you create an isolated Super Bowl event relative to your region – it doesn't involve the playoff that you can control every circumstance of. Yeah, and I mean that that's yeah, back in the nineties the, the West produced some pretty weak champions. And and obviously in the last five years, you know the last two years, Missouri got romped by Alabama. Florida got romped by Alabama. Um the the, the biggest the most blowout fourteen point game I've ever seen in my life. Um, this would assure you of a situation where I think as, as Jason pointed out, I know Florida beat Ole Miss last year, but at the end of the year, you know, Florida lost their quarterback at the end of the year, it was very clear who the better team was among those two, but we were forced to watch number 18 Florida versus Alabama instead of a top 10 team. And this, yeah, this would make sure that at the end of the year, you're playing eight and zero versus seven and one or eight and zero versus six and two or seven and one, six and two, uh, where everybody had relatively even schedules aside from like Tennessee and A&M. And um, you you would get a top ten versus top ten game almost every year, and right now, as as good as the SEC has been, I'm looking at the list here. That's only happened twice in the last six years. Um, you know, we had those one versus two Alabama Florida games, but since then, it's been one versus nineteen, one versus twelve, two three three five, one versus fourteen, and two versus eighteen. That's not as fun. Uh, you would have a hu- you would have a heavyweight battle guaranteed every year, and and why why wouldn't you do that? Objection that comes from across the room would be thus, and I'm not saying it's a good objection. I'm just telling you what would happen if we IRL'd this bad boy. Someone in Birmingham would say. This would prevent the SEC from ever placing two teams in the playoff. That's possible. Bill, your response. That's certainly possible. Although, um, especially if you're twelve and zero and you lose to the number two team in the country, uh, I, I think that would be a relatively forgivable situation with four teams. Uh, obviously, obviously, with the current scenario, we don't know exactly how the the committee will handle. Uh, like a 2013 Alabama situation where they finished 11 and one, lost to Auburn, and didn't play in the title game. Uh, maybe they would have this whole vaunted, you know, conference title bump thing. Maybe that would have kept them out anyway. I don't know. Probably not that year, but in some years it could have. Um, and so maybe in that way, maybe this doesn't hurt that. Maybe it does. I mean, that's a that's a relatively fair thing. But I still like that's. That's down the list, but I will say for people like I, the the most common response to this was, "Oh, this is amazing." That's why the SEC would never think about it. The SEC created the conference title game, yes, um, for all of its conservatism in in on in on the field matters. <laughs> uh, for the most part, um, they were the conference that took the risk of losing a, ch- a championship team by creating a conference title game in the first place, and it kind of worked out pretty well. 
So um, I think right. the SEC is, I don't know about current leadership or anything like that, but yeah. the SEC so, so, just be- Yeah. The reason why I would stick with the gallery here who says, hey, this is amazing, because look, it really is. You and Jason outdid yourselves. It makes total sense and not just even, not in a vacuum. I'm saying this is something that could feasibly go up in front of people in real life and and possibly be discussed. And the problem is the SEC, we see this in, in all different all different kinds of examples in different sports with the Southeastern Conference. They're huge, they're fat, and they're slow moving now. They don't adapt as nimbly as they used to. The the SEC and, and, the, and the Roy Kramer SEC specifically that yeah. built this, the concept of, a, of divisions and a conference title game, they were nimble, but they were also hungry. Um, they did not have the kind of market share that they do today. They did not have the historical run of, of, of dominance. They had not yet woken up to realize that they were going to have a fertile recruiting ground that was, you know, essentially, when you look at the entire area that they encompass now, the best in the country. I don't know if they feel a reason to change anything. My argument to them would be quality of inventory because that's what it all comes down to. X yeah. amount of games you have contracted that you are being paid a billion with a B dollars to provide. I mean, it is the single most valuable thing that they do, whether it's ESPN one day, whether it's their own contract one day, whether who knows if we're getting, you know, broadcast injected into our corneas via some sort of liquid eye drop in 2050. It doesn't matter. I don't know if they would see it as maybe maybe too much for too little in terms of return, but but my guess without even doing the math, with just having the conversation and going back to my gripe last week is it's a overall better inventory of games and competition. I just don't know if it pushes them, the current SEC, the way it sits, to do anything, to change anything. A lot of the decisions the Southeastern Conference makes now, all the way from financing to to picking tournament sites for other sports to you name it it's it's pretty luddite it's it's pretty it's pretty narrow-minded they tend to want to they tend to want to avoid risk they they don't really need to be inventive um and, and so they're not it's why it's why you know a competitive open free market kind of usually benefits a consumer um i would expect to see this you know I, I would think the Big Ten would look at something like this before the SEC ever would. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. And we, we've, you know, we've set it up to help them out, too. Okay, keeping with today's theme, Bill. Heads down on desks. It's okay to take a nap if you finish your coloring worksheet early, and then we're going to put on a video because all everything else is packed up. We're just waiting for the school year to end, all right? Let's just go to reader questions. Yep. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, you just start with this, honestly, because this is where the actual topics of the show seem to come from. Yeah, I mean, not that there's much of a, of a veil of illusion up on this program, but you guys are driving the ship here. Jesse Pound asks, how impactful is the Pitt-Penn State series, especially if Pitt wins this year? So there's a couple answers to this question. Um, I think I'll be there. Um, it just sort of depends on what SB Nation's doing with the, the battle at Bristol, because that's the same day. Um, I've talked to both coaching staffs, uh, Obviously, Pitt is going to kind of play it up more. They had some recruiting wins over Penn State, nothing major, but some significant stuff on the western side of PA. Penn State's going to play it down. Um, obviously, they're going to play up games like Ohio State and Michigan. Um, it is very impactful. It's extremely impactful for 
how much patience James Franklin has afforded as he continues to transition yeah. to post sanctions. And then I think it's impactful for Pitt in a different way. The big thing here is that they're, they are in different conferences. They sort of operate in different worlds. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, Bill, you just did the Pitt preview. Um, how, if the ceiling for Pitt is as high as I think it might be, I'm curious what kind of play Narduzzi would get on the open market if it's if it may be a little too early for that. I don't think it's incredibly insanely early, depending on what job opens. And I hate to discount Pitt right off the right off the bat by saying, "Hey, you could have a, a eight, nine, ten win year and then immediately lose your coach." I think there are some resources to Pitt and advantages now that they're in the Power Five. Um, help me out here. I don't know if they're going to hit that highest ceiling. Well. I, I mean, yeah, you could certainly – it's not hard to craft a scenario where they make the ACC title game. That's for sure. Um, right. Like so many damn ACC teams that I've been talking about, they end up in this range of like seven to eight wins or six to eight wins because everybody's so even in this conference that when I do my win probabilities, half the games you play, you're between like 40 and 60%. So a team that's slightly better than projected could suddenly bump up to like nine or ten wins. Um, if – Tyler, Tyler Boyd's a hard uh, – the pit offense is hard for me to figure out this year because Tyler Boyd was so weirdly used. Like, he, he caught whatever it was, 90 passes, I think, 91 passes. Um, but he was basically used as a tight end. He, he was, you know, catching eight-yard passes or catching five-yard passes and gaining five yards. And he was used as, like, the run game in a lot of ways because especially early in the year they were relying on freshman running backs – um, but if the receiving core, if, if the return of James Conner and all these running backs uh, allows them to kind of establish efficiency and then use guys like um, Dantes Ford as like deep threats, then suddenly the offense could be pretty good. We all we're just kind of assuming the defense is going to take another step forward because they did improve last year. They've got most of their starters back. Um, and he has some pretty relatively interesting freshmen and redshirt freshmen in a couple of pl- uh, places. So, if the offense improves and the defense improves and they, they went, they won eight games last year. Um, that kind of seems like a team that could, that could contend. Now it's, I, I have this weird warped perception of Pitt right now because I've been, th- this has been my, my history uh, off season here in terms of writing about the 1930s. And now I'm, I'm starting to get to the years in at football study hall. When I, as I count backwards here and go year by year with the rankings, I'm getting back to, I've gone back through the, the Dan Marino period. And the next uh, year on the list is 1976 when, uh, when Pitt won the national title. Um, I think I'm getting kind of a, a warped perception of Pitt ceiling because I'm remember, I'm walking through all these things, but it wasn't that long ago. Like I wrote about this in the pit preview. They under Wanstead, they lost a ton of close games, but they were in the top 20 S and P top 20 for, I think three straight years. Uh, so if they got some good bounces, then we're talking about a couple of top 10 AP finishes, 10 win seasons and stuff. And that wasn't very long ago. So their ceiling as a program, I think is still pretty high. Um, but the they got into that. Perception of those years though, because that's a shocking stat to me. We've been, I think we all made, we've laughed about Pitt under Wadstad and since to the degree of where we kind of forgot that they were oftentimes decent, if not yeah. better than that. Well, right. But even with Wadstad, even losing a ton of close games, they went 10 and three in, uh, in 09. 09 wasn't that long ago. They almost right. beat the, you know, they, that crazy Cincinnati game that allowed Cincinnati to finish 
undefeated. They almost, I mean, it took a crazy finish for them to lose that game. They would have been 11 and two. I think if I remember right, that might've made them biggies champs too. So they would have been in a BCS bowl and, and they would have been good enough to compete in that. Unlike the Oh four where they got crushed by Utah. Um, that, yeah, that wasn't, it's just since then they fell into that stupid loop. Like they got rid of Wanstead for winning, even though he, you know, they won 27 games his last three years because of the disappointment, because of the fact that uh, when it was time to win that extra game, they always figured out a way to lose it. They lost, um, well, they lost that game to Cincinnati. They lost to West Virginia. They lost to, uh, you know, Notre Dame by, by six, I think in 2010. Um, they were always kind of a play away from something amazing. And I think what happens is as you raise the bar, uh, if you're still losing these games after a while, you know, it's, it's Glenn Mason territory, I guess they get, the fan base gets pissed, more pissed at you than they would have been. Had you just like established a slightly lower level, but won some close games at the moment, I think Pittsburgh is, is in a really, really good position in terms of perception. The, when Narduzzi got hired, I, everyone in the coaching community that I talked to about it, love the hire. They love the fit, the match. And they, they, everyone said, Hey, you know what? Even though he's a defensive guy and that wasn't in vogue in terms of hiring head coaches, they were going to give him time. They're going to let him do what he wanted to. They knew that he would recruit the area, that he would be knowledgeable about the, the rust belt. It, it made perfect sense. I think it still does. And I think they yeah. can lose at home by 10 or 14 points to, to Penn state and still have a great season. There's, they don't have the anxiety. The anxiety all sits in Happy Valley. Yeah. Look at the schedule for Penn State. You're going to, you know, I, I get asked this a lot because I've known Coach Franklin since he was at Vanderbilt. We've done a couple pieces at SB Nation. I know that staff really well. People keep asking, when is, you know, when is the judgment, when is the referendum come on what Franklin's going to be at Penn State, absent of anything that happened before him or any scholarship limitation or any recruiting any. I think you're going to know how long or what this program is or what the shelf life will be after the first month of this season. They open against Kent State, and then they have two insanely crucial non-conference games in terms of perception in Pennsylvania, and that's at Pitt and then home against Temple after losing to Temple, and then they're at Michigan. Yeah, then they're at Michigan, yeah. So... I've been told by pretty much everyone on the staff at Penn State in some way, shape, or form that, yes, it is obvious that it benefits other programs in the state if Penn State is perceived to be down, not even if they are down. So those games become must-wins after what happened against Temple last year. So you've got to control your state internally. Meanwhile, the outside anxiety of recruiting against D.J. Durkin and Jim Harbaugh and Meyer, that continues to build against Franklin, who was hired sort of as a energy guy, as a recruiting guy. And then you go to Michigan, who hi- who's hired Harbaugh, who's certainly they, – they rebuilt with more talent from Hoke than, than they got from the misfit of the O'Brien era plus the limitation of actual bodies. Like I don't think it's fair to compare them. But fans aren't fair, and they've seen a faster turnaround in Michigan. So it's going to be really interesting to see – I mean right now I don't see Penn State winning that game nine out of ten times. I'd just be curious to see what if it's a, if it's a respectable loss – if you're three and one, you can salvage and sail right through the season. You really can. Um, I mean, the rest of the year is pretty manageable other than Ohio State. They, yeah, I think Michigan State at home. I, I think they've got a better chance there than they do with with going to Michigan. Yeah, I think uh, he, he's been. Uh, he, I, I think it's been pretty unfair what's what's happened. He's been there two years, and he's been there through a weird two years. And I think uh, he's being judged really harshly because Christian Hackenberg just isn't as good as he was supposed to be. But I, I, I know like Bud and I and you and everybody else, we've talked about this a lot in our 
in our office chat room and whatnot. But I mean, I, I really, I think a lot of that's on Hackenberg. I think that the fact that they've been able to, you know, go seven and six each of these two years, it's not great, but it's not shameful. And I think like suddenly he has this, like he's only a recruiter. He's not really a coach. Uh, all these things that are hitting his reputation as if he hadn't won at uh, nine games at Vanderbilt twice. And where I, re- I realized that was a time when the SEC East was kind of weird and, and maybe he was able to steal some wins that he wouldn't be able to in, under most circumstances. But A, nine wins at Vanderbilt. B, he was still putting top 40 or top 50 teams on the field at Vanderbilt, which doesn't do that. Um, so that, I think this is a problem I had with Al Golden fan, uh, and Miami fans a lot too. Like, say he's not the right fit, say this or that, but A, give him a little bit of time and B, He's clearly a pretty good coach because of what he did at his last stop. That doesn't mean you're the right fit at every job, but I, I think the table has turned a little bit more than I'm comfortable with it uh, with Franklin. But all that said, you're right. You play Pitt and Temple back to back weeks. Um, yeah, you. I mean, you rationality have, goes out the window. You have to be three and zero going into Michigan, um, and they know that they're they're completely aware of this. I don't even think they would deny it. That the expectation level right now. People are, are looking for a reason. Is it Matt Rule who played at Penn State? I don't know. They're looking for a reason to change for change's sake at the moment. Um, so that's a really long-winded uh, answer to Jesse's question. It matters a ton. Now, I don't know if the Pitt-Penn State series survives. Um, I don't know how interested Franklin would be in keeping that going because of the – they want to build rivalries. They just may not want to build them – and bring up an in-state rival to their level. Right, yeah, no, there's no, there's so much more gain for Pitt in this game than Penn State. So I'll be really interested. Now, the the one advantage that has been mentioned to me by parties at Penn State is you do get to play a home game in front of the Western PA recruits yeah. in, you know, in Heinz Stadium. So maybe maybe that has more impact than, than we realize. It's going to freaking win it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 the caveat there is it's exposure, great. That's the same, you know, I, I hear that all the time when teams go in and play AAC or CUSA teams in, in, in city markets. Yeah, but you got to win those games no matter what. And you got to look really good and effortless doing it. Otherwise, it's going to completely backfire on you. Yeah. Um, do you want to answer an NC State question? Hey, I just wrote about NC State today, so now's the perfect time to answer an NC State question. It's almost like I knew that and created a segue. James Curl asks, NC State will uh, likely have a decent O and a mediocre D. Is the reverse scenario, good D, meh, O, more preferable? A wash? You know, there's there's a math, uh, a line of math logic that suggested it's better to have a good D because... um, you know, like if you score 50 points every game and you allow 30 points every game versus scoring 20 but allowing zero, you can't ever lose the 20 to zero margin, right? But you can lose plenty of like the 50 to 30 if you're averaging that. Um, and, and that makes sense. And and so I, I understand that logic. But A, I mean, obviously those are extremes. And B, I just haven't I've been, I've tinkered with weights over time between offense and defense to see if there's really something that matters more, and I just haven't found it. So to me, from a from a from my ratings, from the perspective of my ratings, it's just important to have good things. <laughs> Whether you know it's best to be good on offense and defense, uh, and if you're only good at one, haven't really picked up on. Uh, on on one that's better than the other. If you're extremely good, uh, maybe it's better to be extremely ridiculously good at defense than offense. But then again, Boston College, uh, Missouri, <laughs> Ooh, 
plenty of teams last year that were really, really good at defense, uh, couldn't move the ball. It didn't really work out very well for them. So I think it's just, you know, last year NC State was pretty good because they uh, improved to 30th on on offense and they improved from 64th to 45th on defense using my numbers. Um, that That's <laughs> just, just be good. Just try not to regress too much on offense with a new quarterback. Try not to regress on defense. Their run defense should actually be pretty good. Um, but no, in terms of offense versus defense, I think unless you're talking about the extremes and maybe not even then, I don't think it matters. Just be good at stuff. Uh, the coaches that um, I, I've kind of I've never really asked a coach this question specifically, but based on all the embeds I've done and the assistants that I've spoken with about when you're it, it's always delicate to ask a coach this because I'm usually talking to like a coordinator on one side of the ball or not and be like, hey, um, how do you guys account for the offense or the defense, like the area that you don't coach, but your friend does being awful. Um, and yeah. you know, they, they, they're even off the record, very diplomatic about it. But I think if you can draw a rule of thumb from what I've learned over the years, it's that teams with significantly better offenses than defenses usually are a lot more concerned about what road games they have on their schedule. Yeah. Defense travels. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That adage is cliche, no doubt, but it's also, it's, you know, I don't know if it's true if you run the math out, but it's very, very widely held amongst coaches. Yeah, I could certainly, that's something I should definitely kind of play with at some point. But I mean, I, yeah, Missouri went on the road and, and allowed nine points to Georgia and 10 to Vanderbilt and, uh, you know, 21 even to Kentucky. Managed to lose all those games because the offense didn't travel, but the offense wasn't really showing up at home either. So, um, but and also uh, some coaches I've talked to, when you talk about the defense travels adage, a lot of that comes, it's actually more than that. It's that if you have a good defense, uh, when you're on the road and your defense is able to calm everything down early on yeah. in the game, your offense is just exponentially more confident because of that. Well, and just if you think about what a home field provides you, um, it's going to be, the, the stadium is going to be very loud when your offense is on the field. When your defense is on the field, it's probably not going to be loud at all. Um, so just when you think about what a home field advantage is supposed to be, it would kind of make more sense that if it's going to have an impact, it's going to be, it's going to have more of an impact when your offense is out there. Um, I guess this is a question for me, but you're, I'm going to kind of throw it back to you. Uh, Ralph McDonald asks, can you name a time or times when your sources put you ahead of the Phil Steele reading public, I guess ahead <laughs> of the curve on a team trending up or down? Um, the two, so two answers to that. The first one is, what happens more often than not is when I talk to coaches, it's not right now. Uh, it's not June, July, August, or even going into Labor Day because coaches will tell you how much they don't know right now about other teams. Yeah. What I usually get are kind of, I don't want to call them tips, but observations from coaches at about the midway point of seeing a team fall apart down the stretch or, or based on it's, – because it's usually a combination of film that they watched from previous seasons or last year or early on in the season. Then they play this team, and then they'll tell you everything that you want to know. And so I've often been told a, a team is, is going up or down uh, based on coaches that had played them in September or October. Um, you know, the best example I can think of was at Cincinnati when I was with them for Ohio State. They were able to look at what they didn't, what they couldn't do, what they couldn't accomplish relative to what other teams had earlier in the season, like Virginia Tech, the way that Ohio State's defensive backs were pressing. And I think it was specifically some, they had changed some blitzes, they had changed some coverages. 
and and Tubbs and a couple of their guys told me, look, they're they're only getting better. They're only going to continue to achieve, and that was a team that won a national title. Um, the second thing is Ralph. Um, Bill is often sort of my source for this. Now, I'm not ever really put on the spot as a reporter, whatever the traditional reporter hat still looks like in 2016 at a website like ours. But um, when I'm when I'm mapping out interesting games or trying to find a feature story maybe about a particular coordinator and then matching that against the game, I'm usually talking to Bill, talking to people like Bill. Um, Bill, I don't. I mean, you don't really operate by talking to people. The numbers tell you these sort of things. I think you you would pretty much avoid that, right? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk. To, I talk to plenty of coaches in the off season, but in the season, um, it's pretty rare that I'm talking to anybody because uh, I've. Well, I guess I've, what I'm asking you is, would you be, when you talk to someone in the off season and they say, "Hey, watch out for X," if you if you run the numbers and do the preview, and your preview tells you something different, does what that coach tell you factor in? Uh, you know, what, what will happen is there, there are some coaches who I know read the previews or at least the previews for their conference. Um, and they'll give some quick feedback in regards to, uh, you know, other teams in that conference. We're definitely, you know, you're, I think you're underselling this or, you know, you're, you're spot on. This team is going to be really dangerous or this team's so overrated or things like that. So it'll be kind of initial feedback, but the, the, when I'm talking to a coach, it's not usually, I, I need to start BS just hanging out and BSing with coaches more because it's a lot. It's a lot of fun, but I don't do it enough. You trying to take um, the job? That's true. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's your beat. Look, the BS beat. One guy who gets up at four a.m. and makes spreadsheets and writes three thousand words a day, and then there's another guy three. with the expense account getting drunk in bars. Okay, with coaches, stay in your lane. And you know these are good lanes, and I think. Uh, you have a lot more entertaining stories than I do at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> uh, Bill, Ben Brignier asks, I probably killed that last name, is the Dabo Flex CEO model of uh, energy slash run the show, hire scheme guys, is that gaining traction or is that just narrative? Um, both? Yeah, I mean, there have always been those types of coaches. Mac Brown won a national title as that kind of coach. CEO um, head coach was the norm for years. Yeah, I, I mean, there have always been the types that, you know, when you hire really good assistants, well, Bobby Bowden in, in a lot of ways, you know, when his when he made good assistant hires, he did great, and then he'd lose that assistant, and if the next guy wasn't as good, they, they started to fade. That was one of the reasons they kind of faded at the end, I think. So, I mean, I, I think there are certainly, that, that's always been um, a thing, and I'm, I'm actually looking up, I'm, I'm blanking on the book title all of a sudden. Um, well, while you think of this, I'll say this. Yeah. Older head coaches tend to tell me that, and this is bias, but just for the sake of conversation, older head coaches tend to tell me that sometimes, without naming names, when you see a younger head coach flame out, mm-hmm. it's because they don't know how to delegate, they fear delegating, and they fear a loss of control in aspects that they were trained. So a career coordinator, uh, a guy who's particularly recruiting-minded, when they get the HC job, they, they are overwhelmed and inundated, so they end up going back to their comfort zones, neglecting other areas, and then they lose the ability to operate as a CEO. Yeah. Um, that's not always the case, but that seems to be the gripe amongst kind of the older the older group of head coaches when they see young guys have problems. Yeah, um, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Um, let's see, what was it called? Oh, Breaking the Line. 
um, is the name of the book I was about to reference. It is a book about the 1967 Florida A&M Grambling game because I've, you know, in my, that has been part of my history uh, study this offseason is writing some HBCU pieces. Um, the book is called Breaking the Line. It's really, really good, really thorough. I'm only like uh, halfway through it at the moment. But in that he talks about um, like the, the, the personalities of different coaches. And, and so you've got an Eddie Robinson um, who he, he was kind of a CEO type, but he was still very much involved in the game planning and, and everything else. But then you had a guy like uh, Tennessee head coach, uh, Tennessee State head coach at the time, which uh, as we uh, I am now Googling as we. I've had too many names go through my head recently, but he was a recruiter. He was a great John Merritt. He was a great recruiter, um, but his he he would show up uh, before games. He, he on practice during the week, he'd just kind of show up and and very loudly uh, say, "You're welcome to the offensive and defensive coordinator for the talent he has provided them." And then he would go out and recruit, and he'd show up and give the pregame speech. Uh, that's kind of an extreme example, uh, but uh, that it, it reminded me of that with this book. Is it's a really it's a really fun book, and the, the personalities involved in in sixties HBCU was pretty crazy. Um, but no, that, that's always been you've always had those different types. You've had the offensive coordinators who try to just hire a really good defensive staff and let them do their thing, or vice versa. Or you have the really organized guys. I think that's organization is something that it's it's impossible to know ahead of time how organized a guy is going to be from a head coaching perspective. Um, and it's kind of the key to the whole thing. Lots of great defensive coordinators fail because they couldn't, as you were saying, delegate right and uh, keep track of their, their basically their new responsibilities. Um, whereas some relatively okay coordinators have been very good head coaches for that same reason. Um, when you talk about head coaches that have made, that have really built amazing longevity in the modern era. I mean, he's not popular. He's terrible to talk to. And I think he's probably a dick in real life, but what Stoops has done at Oklahoma is kind of how you do that. Yeah. You break convention. You, you kind of change the stereotype of what kind of coach you are, what kind of, what kind of system you like. In fact, you kind of throw the concept of being a system person out the window and then, you know, I've seen it mentioned anecdotally over the years that when Stoops has hired new DCs or OCs or they've changed something up, it's based on things that they had struggled against. Yeah, they yeah. Saw. Like, that's – I don't think he gets enough credit maybe because he's uh, – Cranky. Dickish. But he's really, really good at adapting. And yeah, and, and he's the same deal. He he'll lose a coordinator or a really important assistant, and the next guy won't be as good. And then he'll get rid of that guy, hire a good one, and kind of roll all over again. I will. I that that brings to mind. Of course, the famous story with Bob Stoops is when he was Oklahoma brings him in, and he's thinking, "What kind of offense should I run? Oh, I'm going to run the kind that I hated defending. I'm going to hire Mike Leach as my offensive coordinator." Uh, when I talked to him for that rebuild piece a couple of years ago, he said that's sort of true. But what gets left out of there uh, of that story was um, it was also a, a short term necessity because he basically inherited a roster that had no quarterbacks, 
Right. And so he uh, he's like, what's a quarterback-friendly offense I can run? Uh, then he makes the connection with Leach, and then they go out and they sign Heupel, uh, Nate Hibble uh, from, as a transfer from Georgia, and then I think pretty soon after, Jason White. And so basically because of the offensive system they hired, uh, they brought in, uh, within like a month of each other, they basically scored the quarterbacks that would be like their quarterback for like the next like eight years or something crazy because of Jason White's injuries. So if there's a um, through line for success, I think that it's, it's adaptability. So often these guys become famous for a particular style or scheme on either side of the ball. And, you know, when you start jamming square pegs in around holes, you're not going to get, you know, if you're a hot coordinator and, and you're up, you're up for jobs, it's not necessarily, even if you're red hot, going to be the greatest assemblage of, of jobs you've ever seen. Yeah. So you either kind of sit on your hands and wait until you find something that you think will fit your system best, or you start modifying your system to, to create a little fluidity for yourself on the market. Um, yeah, you, you can only take the jobs that are available to you. That was, who was it? One of those pieces, I think it was that rebuild. Oh, Kevin Wilson. It was part of that rebuild piece, too. Um, you know, I asked him how he ended up in Indiana, and part of the reason was Indiana's head coaching job was available. Right. Um, but you have no idea necessarily when you're Kevin Wilson when and he was at what OU, right? Yeah. Yeah. See, that's that's how we that's how we do our conversation. That's right. That. Uh, you, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get in terms of talent over a four to six year cycle at Indiana based off of what you got at Oklahoma. It's not comparable. Yeah. So if your system relies on I mean, look, <laughs> coaches joke all the time, like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, damn, uh, you know, uh not Nussmeyer, um McElwain's offense he had, he he was a genius. He had the greatest passing system in in college football for two years, and then the, the punchline is yeah, because Julio Jones is there, right? You now, that's I think we as fans uh, get hung up a lot, and so this is a good piece of advice going forward. Try to look at the the coaching prospects out there, which some fans I'm probably will be doing this in you know before Halloween, uh, less as a structure and more as um, their, their personalities and their dynamics. Now, I'll leave it at this. We'll move on. It's very hard to do that because a lot of these candidates stay guarded. Kirby Smart's a great example. We didn't really know Kirby Smart's philosophy on a lot of things because of the Alabama media policy. Right. So this it, it sort of becomes the job of people like me is to use rumor and use the sewing circle that is college assistants and kind of figure out what kind of guys he like, what does he, you know, what kind of stuff does he believe in? What did they do? Now, if you're a football, if you're a, you know, a Chris Brown, smart football guy, a lot of their signature and their personality is going to be reflected in what they call on the field. But a lot of us can't see that. So right. it becomes a guessing game on a lot of candidates, some less than others. But unfortunately I had a colleague, uh, David Fox over at Athlon who, who, I was talking to him on the phone recently, and he said that he had made a call out to, and I guess I should name the school, but a, a school in the Mountain West, and they had adopted this sort of Nick Saban philosophy of not even letting the assistants talk to the media, which is just absolutely asinine. And I don't say that as a media member. I just say that logically you're in the mountain freaking West. Like, you, you need the PR. Um, I kind of rutted myself there. All right, we're going to do this one fast. I'm going to let you tee off, Okay. I feel like you. I feel like you're moving into my lane today, trying to go talk to coaches and get drunk with them. And well, I'm talking about coaches I talked to two two years ago. So what? I think I, I revealed that I, I haven't uh, hardly talked to any coaches this off season. I'm, I'm talking about conversations I had two years ago. So you're safe. All right. Well, now you want to be the angry guy. So um, 
Poor Adam Luckett. We're about to lay you on the altar. Um, Adam, <laughs> Adam tweeted us 11 times. I'm going to try and condense this question here. Judging by his, his avatar, which is a photo of him giving a thumbs up in a Kentucky shirt, may inform the conversation here. Um, so let me set this up, add one thing, and I'll get out of your way, okay? And then we'll move on. Um, Adam Luckett asks, why does S&P Plus dislike Kentucky? On paper, UK should be better than Mizzou, Vandy, Ole Miss with the addition of Grant. And then I think a couple tweets later, I think he he actually didn't mean to mention Ole Miss, and he means South Carolina, Mizzou, and Vandy. Then yeah. he also follows this up by saying, do the numbers take into effect all the three and outs UK had that hurt the defense last year? How do the numbers include a rating when the team hires a new successful coordinator? Um, okay, take a deep breath. I'm going to say this. I know Eddie Grant. I worked with him on a couple stories. He's a super nice guy. Really, really smart. He's been around for freaking ever. He can recruit pretty much anywhere you put him. And he is a flexible, liberal, offensive mind. Um, I don't know if Eddie is necessarily a faith healer. And I've never seen him resuscitate a corpse and bring someone back from the dead. Um, would you like to defend your S&P Plus now? Yeah, I mean... I mean, yeah, I have nothing against Eddie Grant. I think it was a it was a fine hire, a decent enough hire. Um, I don't think it's a program changing hire. And I would also I would also point out that South Carolina also has a new offensive coordinator, um, Kurt who, Roper. Uh, who Roper, who other outside of his one year at Florida has been good, and and Missouri has a new offensive, offensive coordinator, coordinator Kentucky. That's right. And uh, Missouri has a new offensive coordinator named John ha- Josh Heupel, who did pretty well at OU before getting sucked into the undertow of Bob Stoops needing to make changes. So on paper, Grant isn't really any better than either of those two. So, I mean, that's, that's where they are, the, the conversation starts. I mean, yeah, again, he's fine. But the, the other part of the, <laughs> the other reason S&P hates Kentucky is the last um, – Five years, Kentucky has ranked 93rd, 75th, 84th, 58th, and 95th. Um, Mark Stoops has kind of lost the benefit of the doubt at this point. He's been there three years. He inherited a program uh, that, had, that had ranked 75th from Joker Phillips, and he has he's beaten 75th once in three years. Um, now, they've signed a few more good recruits. They should have better experience now. But he's there's no benefit of the doubt here from the numbers or you know from my head <laughs> at this point. Uh, it, it could absolutely still work out for him, but they were they backslid massively last year, uh, both sides of the ball. You know, um, Tolls has like the one good game, the the one the the suddenly he couldn't miss a twenty five yard pa- uh, pass down the middle against Missouri, and then he barely hits that pass the rest of the year and gets benched. Um, not not that that not that I'm bitter about that at all. But um, because if, if Missouri would have won that game, that would have just meant I would have had to watch a Missouri bowl game too, and I was pretty okay with being done. But um, bottom line here is that they just haven't been good enough to get any sort of benefit of the doubt from any sort of number system right now. And, and um, the other part there is that I don't take coordinator changes into account at all because it's just too random. For every, for every turnaround that, one, that a change causes, there's a, the opposite kind of turnaround uh, that a coaching ch- that an assistant coaching change can hire uh, can change. So I don't I don't factor that in at all. All the numbers are going to see is that Kentucky hasn't had a top seventy offense since 2010, and hasn't had a top fifty defense since 2011. Uh, so <laughs> get get to work on that, Mark Stoops. Um, Kentucky schedule is not good. It's um, I I really don't see how 
unless Grant and, and QB coach uh, Darren Hinshaw, who came with him from Cincinnati, unless they were, unless they are raising the dead, um, their non-conference schedule is manageable enough. Other than that, they're probably going to lose at Louisville, and they kick off against a decent, kind of secretly decent Southern Miss team, even though they change coaches. Um, they have to go to Florida. They have to go to Alabama in rotation. Um, they close out the year in a stretch in which they have Georgia, Tennessee, and then Louisville with the crap game against Austin P. sandwiched in there. Um, I don't know. I, I really never get fire happy or advocate firings, but Kentucky is a delicate situation in that, in that prolonged mediocrity or, or sub-mediocrity, whatever you want to call it, it, it becomes really dangerous because it becomes that much harder to change perception in recruiting. Um, Stoops made a bunch of noise in Southern Ohio and up into Big Ten country. It's kind of funny, but like before we, we've blown this Harbaugh thing out into a cosmic proportion, but Stoops was very quietly, without camps or anything, going in and recruiting very aggressively as an SEC program in places like Ohio and further north and further east. Um, that's kind of tabled off to a degree. They really need to go to a bowl. They really yeah. need to, to win six games, and I don't see it here. I mean, you can get to five pretty easy. Southern Miss, New Mexico State, Vanderbilt, um, Austin P. Okay, that's four. <laughs> um, Southern Miss, New Mexico State, Vanderbilt, and Austin P. Yeah, okay, so that's four. If Mississippi um, State has an absolute implosion replacing yeah, Prescott. They'll certainly, yeah, they'll be within range being that it's in Lexington. So that's a possibility. Um, you know, you want to say Georgia still might not have a quarterback. You know, they might be. They might have a frazzled freshman by early November. We don't know for sure. Um, at Florida, clearly isn't going to be the worst thing in the world until we know they have a quarterback. At Missouri, is not the worst thing in the world until we know they have something of an offensive line. So um, there are potential yeah. wins there. I think you. Yeah. I think you go three and one in non-conference play. You catch Vanderbilt, South Carolina, and maybe Mississippi State. And I feel, I mean, that's that's kind of a leap on Mississippi State. That's a big leap. It seems like you're going to have to win one of the three there against Mississippi State at Missouri and Georgia. And this uh, just, I mean, you finished five and seven last year. This just isn't the year. You finished five and seven for two years in a row. This just isn't the year where five is going to be okay. It's actually kind of a hot seat job, and I hate to say I, you that. You know, I, I don't know. I haven't decided about that because... I mean, number one, they are. I mean, they're they're building. They've built facilities. They're trying to establish a lot of. I, I think I'm always an advocate for patience and the fact that you know he's gone five and seven the last two years. Even though last year was kind of a fluky five and seven, they were a legitimately decent five and seven in 2014. Very much less so last year. Um, but I mean, they weren't. They'd gone six five two the last three years in terms of wins before he got there. And even at their peak, they were only eight and five. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I always preach patience for the most part, at least. And, and I would say that Kentucky would almost certainly be, benefit from patience. It's just I, my own faith in Mark Stoops' ability to get to a, even eight wins at this point. I've lost most of that faith, and he's got some work to do in that regard. By the way, speaking of hot seat, I know people always love to go to that coach's hot seat website. I don't know who runs it. I'm sure they're very nice people. They're obviously diehard college football fans. So more, more power to you. That's an arbit that, that's not like it's like a junk metric it's not real just so you know like in their top 20 right now i can name you like personally at least five coaches who are absolutely not on the hot seat um just off the top of my head uh jeff munkin at army david Beatty at kansas paul johnson at georgia tech and let's see here mike mcintyre colorado 
Um, I don't think Adazio is at Boston College. Gary Anderson is not at Oregon State. Um, there are some legit names on here, no doubt, but like I think they just kind of do this for fun. I mean, they have I've, Will Muschamp number two right now. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm, I'm kind of confused by Will Muschamp being number two. Just because he shouldn't have been hired doesn't mean he's going to be fired two games into the year or something. No, not at all, not at all. Um, one thing this actually reminds me of that we were talking about at work, it wasn't on our ag- agenda for today, but we can we can use this before we go to bingo if you want. Yeah, we need to get to bingo, yeah. Um, we work, I don't know if it was a byproduct of working on the the SEC realignment thing or not, but um, I noticed week three, Auburn plays Texas A&M, and I don't know, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a more anxiety, that, that may be the anxiety bowl for us this year. I think it's pretty hard to argue against it. I think that's going to be, yeah, in terms of pure anxiety, that's going to be a really, really, really interesting game, yeah. I think actually it came from a press release coming, I think SEC Network is setting up scheduling and times and that kind of stuff, so... Uh, real fast, it's, it's September 17th, it's week three, it's a Saturday night game, it's in Jordan-Hare, um, A&M comes in, but here's what's interesting about this, obviously they both underperformed, um, tons of money invested in those programs, high anxiety, they're both kind of living in a post-quarterback world, except it's been a while since Cam Newton was at Auburn. Um, you have an Auburn team that opens with five straight home games, the only problem is the first one is against Clemson. Yeah. So you could have a hypothetical situation where Clemson comes in and beats Alabama. Or sorry, oops, sorry, sorry. Oh man, let's leave it in, Bill, just just so people can get mad at me. Uh, Clemson comes in and beats Auburn handily, um, and handily I think we'll go with seventeen or more, something like that. It's possible, right? Sure. So then that happens. Okay, then you lose to Texas A and M. So you've officially become a basement dweller in the West, and it's not even the end of September yet. You're one and two, and then the next week you would host LSU. Um, I think that's probably a doomsday scenario. By the way, Arkansas State is in the in between those two games. Um, <laughs> on the flip side, Bill, you have an A and M team that opens at home at Kyle Field against UCLA. Yep. They have a squeeze crap game against Prairie View A and M before they go to Auburn, and then theoretically, I think it's very possible that UCLA comes in, looks good at Kyle Field, wins that game. You have an A&M team that loses on the road to Auburn and then has to go to a neutral site game in Arlington against Arkansas the following week. They would then follow that up with nothing but, but what, a month of the SEC? So you'd have South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama. It's it, things, could, things can get ugly fast for either program and maybe even both. Yeah. Um, that's why that game is so fascinating to me. That same day, Alabama's playing Ole Miss, so it will be buried in terms of coverage and interest, and games like this don't really draw the kind of attention for normal fans like they do for us, but I'm fascinated. I really am. Yeah, I'm there with you. Somebody will probably be... I really can't think of a situation, Bill, and, and feel free to challenge me before we go to bingo, but after that game, the loser of that game will be the number one hot seat coach in America and just in terms of fan outrage. I don't think it will get any worse than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can always paint a scenario where they've already, you know, where that's not the case. But in, if, we're, if we're just playing the odds there, especially if we ignore on, on the coach's hot seat thing, if we ignore Muschamp at two, these are all, they're already the top two. They're already in, in kind of dire straits at the moment. So, yeah, you, you lose that game. You're probably not getting fired at, on, on Sunday or, you know, on the tarmac or whatever. But um, your odds of surviving at that point till the end of the year are, are, are dicey. So, You ready? Of course. I feel like I need theme music here. That's one of the things we're going to work on. Like, like, 
like some sort of, I don't know, intimidating action movie trailer music. Uh-huh. All right, it's time for blo- uh, Blind Box Score Bingo, or Blinglo, as I just said. Um, by now, if you listen, you should know the rules. Um, every week, I pick a anonymous box score sent in by you, the listener. Uh, if you'd like to play along, email me. Don't email Bill. Take a box score from a game within the last three years that you think is tough to decipher for the robot Bill Connolly. Strip the names and affiliations off of it. Send that to me so I can provide Bill with the information. And then Bill will try and recreate the game just from the box score. Bill, do you have the blind box score ready and pulled up in front of you? I do. Okay. Um, I'm going to... I tell you what. It might be a small tip-off if I tell you who sent it in first. So we'll do all that at the end. Yeah. Yeah. No need to tip me off. Okay. Let's jump right in. We have a green team and a purple team, Bill. The green team had 19 first downs. The purple team had 21. The green team was 7 of 14 on third down. The purple team was 8 of 16. The green team was 1 of 1 on fourth down. And the purple team was 0 for 1 on uh, fourth down. The green team had 445 yards total. The purple team had 460 yards total. The green team had 27 yards passing. They were 3 of 6 for 4.5 yards of pass and no picks. The purple team had 319 yards passing. They were 26 of 41 with a 7.8 yards per pass. The green team rushed for 418 yards. 60 attempts at 70 yards of rush. Or 7, I'm sorry, 7.0 yards of rush. I read that wrong. The purple team had 141 yards rushing. 32 attempts for a 4.4 carry average. The green team was penalized four times. For 31 yards, the purple team was penalized four times for 30 yards. Both had one turnover. Both lost a fumble. Neither team threw a pick. The green team had 32 minutes of possession, 32-41, and the purple team had 27-19 in possession. Um, That is all the information on the sheet. Bill. Yeah. What happened in this game? Uh, obviously, the green team with the 60 carries to six rushes, I mean, 60 carries to six passes, uh, controlled the clock. And that's evident by the fact that they, they only tried 66 plays, but they had 32.41 uh, in possession. Obviously, that's um, that, that tells us a decent amount right there. I will say, even with 66 plays, 19 first downs kind of... That, that threw me off a little bit. I would have expected more uh, from a team that rushed 60 times for 418 yards. So that kind of maybe tips me off that there were a couple big plays in there. Uh, and otherwise, maybe they struggled at times to run the ball. Like they went into, they fell into a couple of droughts. Uh, so maybe that's, that's a black mark in the green team's favor. Um, obviously... Uh, I would love to know something about sacks in this game because the, uh, the you know the purple team threw 41 passes, only completed 26 of them, which isn't that amazing. They uh, you know 319 yards is is a nice total, but I'm guessing maybe there were some sacks in that rushing total uh, that also stalled some drives out. Both teams were pretty good on third down, seven. They were both 50. percent uh, the green team obviously had the the you know the basically they were kind of like 18 for 14 because they had the fourth down conversion. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of I'm kind of looking at a box score here where both teams had a little little bit of an efficiency, maybe a little bit of an efficiency issue, uh, and were reliant on big plays. Um, so then you know, with a potential efficiency issue, which is a weird thing to say with the 50% third down conversions, 
Um, maybe that, as always, means that the, you know the big plays that landed in the end zone versus the big plays that uh, were stopped at the twenty and ended up in a field goal attempt. Maybe that plays once again. Maybe finishing drive plays a huge role here. But obviously, this was a close game. You had what four hundred. 45 yards in 66 plays for the green team, which um, is 6, 6.7 per play overall. Obviously, that's a very big total uh, and, and had to include big plays to some degree. Uh, the other team had 460. I'm breaking out the calculator here because I need the, to- the total yards per play. Um, they had 6.3 yards per play. So obviously, big plays were involved here. Green team controlled the clock. Maybe that made the difference. Um, but really that was just probably a product of running a lot uh, that they only, okay. How about this? That they only threw six passes at the very least tells us that the game was close. Uh, they weren't losing big because he, almost any team would end up with 10, 15 passes if they were losing big. Um, the fact that the other team had 41 th- passes to 32 rushes means they weren't completely pass heavy and they weren't out of the game entirely. They obviously leaned on the pass, but they, they were still running the ball quite a bit unless there were like 12 sacks involved. Um, I guess maybe the green team pulled it off, but this was very clearly a, a pretty close game, or at least it was for most of the game. Are you ready? Yep. November 2nd, 2014, Dateline, Jacksonville, Florida. Florida coach Will yeah. Muschamp reached over his shoulder and said, let me lift this thing off my back. He probably should have used both hands. After all, this was a big win, and an even bigger relief for Muschamp and the Gators. Matt Jones and Kelvin Taylor combined for 389 yards rushing and four touchdowns. Lots of big plays. Upset Georgia, number 11 Georgia, 38-20 to on Saturday, ending a three-game losing streak in the series and quite possibly saving Muschamp's job. <laughs> All right, uh-huh. now, before, before you digest this, because I know right now you're <laughs> furatively pulling up your stats for this game, um, this was sent in by our friend David Wonderlich over yep. at Team, P- Team Speed Kills. Obviously... Because of his affiliation with Florida, I did not want to tip that early on, okay? He came up with a very thoughtful attempt at stumping you, and so I want to read this. He said, all right, Godfrey, I'm pulling uh, pulling the guard and tackle and running up Bill's left side with this one. I think this may get him stumped. I give you the 2014 cocktail party, a.k.a. George's last-ditch effort to save Muschamp's job. I think it has a chance to trip him up because... Florida looks like a triple option team with its three of six passing for 27 yards versus 60 rushing attempts for 418, but it wasn't running a bunch of option. Georgia's run defense just plain no-showed. Many of the stats ended up close. First downs, third down efficiency, total yards, yards per play, total fourth down attempts, penalties, turnovers. Even time of possession isn't so far off, and it could seem like a natural artifact of having a presumably triple option team in an otherwise close game. Yet this was a big blowout with the Gators scoring a touchdown to go up 31-7 to early in the fourth. Georgia rolled up 211 yards, 46% of total, in its final three drives after it was well into garbage time. That makes the yardage especially misleading as the Bulldogs even outgamed Florida in total yards. It helped give them more first downs, too. Even though Georgia trailed big in the second half, it was close throughout the first half. Right. Therefore, Georgia's run-pass mix isn't too far out of whack, despite the lopsided final score. Georgia's 4.4 per rush is respectable but not great, so the box score doesn't scream, quote, abandon the run to play catch-up all second half, end quote, as it would if the Bulldogs had rushed for 5-plus yards per carry while also throwing more times than running. If this doesn't stump Bill to any degree, (laughs) then nothing will. This was, hands down, let me say this, it was the most thoughtful, 
<laughs> at going at Bill that we've had so far. And I don't like that people are actually con- like strategizing. That's and, no fun. And if you let me just, David has raised the bar for blind box score bingo. <laughs> so if you want to submit a score from here on out, I'm not saying you have to do the treatise here that David created. But that's how much thought he put into stumping Bill. So I think we have a new. This is the the standard setter. Now, what did you feel stumped? Do you feel deceived? I if, actually. You say this, Bill. He makes a lot of good points that you've talked about in your book as to why we need to better a box score anyway. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was cycling through in my head like the number of uh, the number of games that I could remember where team a team threw like four, five, or six passes. Um, and this was one of the ones that popped into my head. I obviously didn't keep it there because I wouldn't have gone the way I did with the predict, uh, prediction. But, no, I mean, this is a good one in that, you know, it was 14-7 at halftime. Therefore, Georgia had no reason to abandon the game plan. And when it actually got out of control for them, it was pretty sudden. Um, you know, it was, let's see, it was 14-7 at half. Florida scores early in the second half, but it's still only 21-7 until there are five minutes left in the third quarter. And when it went bad for Georgia, it went bad really, really quickly where you weren't going to be able to throw off the run-pass ratio because they had, let's see, after halftime, they had three and out. Then they had a big play and a fumble um, uh, in their second drive of the second quarter. And then they had another three and out. So basically they ran eight plays in the third quarter when a team would have been starting to pass more because they were suddenly falling way behind. Um, and then, yeah, I don't remember exactly how that played out in the fourth quarter, but then they probably went a little more pass heavy down the stretch, but no, that, that was, that was such a weird game. Um, and it never really seemed like Florida was out of control. They just, they screwed up and then Florida managed those, uh, relatively quick 17 points. And suddenly it was the, the strangest blowout of all time. So, um, <laughs> definitely a good one, definitely a weird one. Uh, that a team could score that much and win that easily with Trayon Harris completing three passes for 27 yards. I thought this was awesome. I thought it was um, – I, I don't know. Do we call this a win or a loss or a, a half? Oh, or? no. I mean, he definitely um, – I, I thought it was – You know, I, obviously I can walk back through and remember that it was close for the most part or well into the second half. But, no, I mean, it was – I said close game and it was 18 points. Therefore, David Wonderlick with the win. Wow. Bill, Bill just kneeled and conceded defeat. Okay, well, that's not the tone I wanted to I wanted to end the show on because if you missed my mention at the top of the program, we are going to take a week off. I will be um, in parts unknown without any electronic devices um, for for hopefully most of my time off. Um, so you will not get a podcast next week. Uh, we will return um, the the following week and then probably have to move some things around. But we are planning on doing. Um, one a week from here on out, including the week of Fourth of July and all that. We'll just we'll figure out the logistics and get back and to it, you guys on it. It's become a running joke, but eventually we will have guests. No, we will, we will definitely. Uh, also, <laughs> we've got some big things planned. Uh, Bill and I are going to take this show on the road at least once this summer, and uh, and and not only have guests, but have them like live and in person, staring at us at our faces. Um, which means what? That that will only be the second time that we've actually done this show in the same room at the same time. That's right. With a better microphone this time. I apologize. I am a avid podcast listener for, for podcasts of all different genres. I actually don't really listen to a lot of sports podcasts anymore, but I, I, I get my fix just like hopefully you guys get your fix for, for this. But uh, please understand, this is the Valley. Uh, we've decided to take a little break here, um, preserving and recharging and, and, and gathering up bits of sanity before Speak the March. Speak for yourself. Week. What's that? Are you not going to recharge? 
I am going to a family reunion this weekend, but... Uh, well, look, look, here, we'll leave the show on a topic. How long do you think you could go right now? Like, you could take the time off if you wanted to. How long could you go just not doing an electronic thing? Well, here's the... I, I think, like, that's one of those situations where, like, the first hour is kind of, like, weird, and then you're like, oh, yeah, this is fine. I remember how to do this. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, right now, like, my biggest issue is that I'm finishing a book, and I have the preview series to write, and I've already eaten up the off time I built into the preview series, so I wouldn't really, really be able to do that, but why generally speaking... Huh? So that's why you're a robot. Um, <laughs> well, for those of us normal human beings, I'll, uh, I'm going to take a, a brief sabbatical when I return. I have a month. A, a solid American month bill of conference media days staring at me. One, two, as I look at my calendar, one, two, three, at least four, possibly five conference media days coming up. Um, that actually made me shudder a little bit. So, <laughs> I think I'm doing one, so so Godspeed. You need the vacation more than I do. Uh, we will be doing the show from a variety of wonderful hotel locations <laughs> coming up in the month of July. But again, thanks for listening. Uh, take a week off. Take a week off everything. Well, we gave you like two weeks, like two hours worth of podcasts here, so that that should suffice. Yeah, I, I hope it holds you over. Again, my apologies. We're going to take a break, and then we are marching clear on, um, and we'll have more announcements to come. Uh, keep sending me your meaningful scores. I am still building, and uh, eventually one day we'll get this logo done. But again, um, every score that you guys send us, I have them filed away. Um, only Only request is if you send in a meaningful score, don't attach it with like a question for the show or a box score challenge or anything like that, because I'm trying to keep them all separate as we continue to build this project. So, um, Bill, anything else for our uh, fine listeners before we go away for the summer? Uh, no, I hope you, hope you're liking ACC previews because they're going to keep right on coming. All right. That's positive. We'll see you guys in two weeks.